The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to a special Mad Men edition of the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with our TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Great. So we were just talking about how all of our favorite TV moment this week was The Americans. If any of you out there watch it, it was a pretty huge moment. In addition to TV moment of the week, that's a big moment that's for a, a t- long for time. That's like, just a I, big TV moment. That's a big TV moment, period. Yeah. We're talking about the scene where they tell Paige that they're spies. It was a scene that you sort of knew was coming, and then it still surprised me in a lot of ways. Yeah. I thought the entire thing was beautifully constructed. It was to the Americans as the suitcase was to Mad Men, in the sense that it's in many ways uncharacteristic of what the show does, and yet very characteristic. And it takes a second to see how those two things reconcile, but they do. I really liked how one of the things that's been going on a lot this season is, like, is Paige growing up, right? She's, what, like, maybe 15, I think? And so she has, you know, her own stuff, and she can swing by her parents' office, and they didn't drive her there, you know? And she can go to church and she wants to get baptized and she has sort of like all of her own ideas but then in that moment she seemed like such a little girl when she was like say something in Russian right like she doesn't know what Russian sounds right how would she know that she's not some like like oh that's not real Russian or whatever right like what's she gonna say that was such like a little kid way of not knowing how to deal with something so what else did you guys like last week if anything. Uh, <laughs> I thought this week's Being Mary Jane was excellent. I like that show a lot. It's a show that really knows what its deal is and what it's going to be about and how its characters operate. And I feel like in the second season, they just have gone like sort of pedal to the metal about Mary Jane's crisis of identity. And, and she's coping a lot with, you know, is she ever going to get married and have a baby? And, and does she really want that? And what's the sort of social cost of deciding you do or don't want that? And, and is she beautiful? And there was a segment this week where, so Mary Jane is like a CNN sort of talk show host and like anchor. And then they have like panel segments. And it was a segment about black women and beauty. And they had real activists on and India Ari was one of the panelists and they just like actually talked about it. And it was also just like smart and really emotional, right? Like I don't think we ever want a show that's just like a very special episode of this to discuss race, right? Like that just feels <laughs> very like inauthentic and joyless and that's just not what the sort of tools of narrative television are suited to. But I think when a show can have characters who care about something and deal with stuff and they can address I, you know, I'm so loathe to be like, tackle issues. That sounds so corny. But when a show can say, like, these are the things that these characters care about and they care about them in serious ways and here's the ways that they're thinking about it and talking about it right now. And I think when you can do that and do it well and have it be part of the story and advance the plot and sort of show us things about the characters mm-hmm. we wouldn't otherwise get to see. I just thought it was a 10. I really, yeah, I think the season's does, excellent. It really handles those issues so naturally. It just kind of... It's like they're just talking. Right. They are. I mean, it's not overlaid on the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, this is part of what Mary Jane thinks about. And so she wants to talk about it on her show. And, you know, I also think there's plenty of, like, humor and levity in the show. I still think it's very soapy. I think the way that it, like, you know, Mary Jane's house is just, like, the best TV house <laughs> for me right now. Um, so there's, like, lots of things going on. It's not just, like, a Degrassi where it's, like... It's, like, fun, too. Yeah, it's yeah. a fun show. <laughs> but I also think it's very savvy and um, and sort of, like, I'm not... Not sure it's on everyone's radar, and I think if you're looking for a show right now, especially as we're sort of between seasons in some other areas, Being Mary Jane's a good one to pick up. Matt? It was Better Call Saul, which was kind of a quietly devastating episode where Jimmy 
and his brother Chuck are trying to get mm-hmm. this class action lawsuit going at Chuck's old firm and uh Jimmy learns why the deal fell apart and it wasn't for the reasons that he thought and you really just see people coming up against their own limitations and how other people perceive them. I, I'm being vague because I don't want to ruin it. I know that not not everyone is watching the show and I know a lot of people who are fans of Breaking Bad are not entirely satisfied with it because it's not it's just not as intense. It's like there's not as much crazy science fiction mad scientist sort of stuff going on. It's really more like the Rockford Files or Terriers or something Mm -hmm. along those lines but uh i just think it's lovely and and the things it does are so graceful and so small and that's unusual for amc which often goes for the big effect so moving on to mad men which had its season seven part two premiere last night we're gonna start off by talking in depth about that episode, and then we're gonna bring on New York Magazine music critic Lindsay Zolads to discuss the song that both opens and closes the episode. And finally, Vultures West Coast editor Joe Adalian will talk to AMC president Charlie Collier about their Mad Men rollout. So on last night's episode, we find ourselves in the year 1970. Roger Sterling has a mustache. And we're reintroduced with, to a newly single Don, who's kind of back to his old ways, womanizing, but he's not married this time, so it's a little different. Um, and there's kind of this whole this feeling of unease over the whole episode. Did this feel like an extension of last season to you, or did it feel like we were entering a new season? I don't know. That's hard. I was thinking about that. To me, it's like, is it continuous? Is it broken off? I don't. I don't really know. And in fact, every season of the show is it feels kind of continuous to me. And I say that because I've been rewatching the episodes, and one bleeds into two, bleeds into three, bleeds into four, and so on in a very in a very seamless way. It's and in in the way that one week or month or year of your life kind of fuses with the next one, and you're not sure when did this era of my life begin and when did this other one leave off. It's hard to pinpoint that. That's one of the things that's beautiful about the show. I also was. I'm not positive that Don and Megan's divorce is completely finalized. Yeah, I don't know about that. Right. I mean, they're obviously not together, and he says that they're divorced, but I'm not, you know, I would. <laughs> you don't believe him. Well, no, I believe him, <laughs> but I think that's a common social shorthand you would right. use even if you were still in the process of getting divorced. Like, yeah. I'd be surprised if we never saw Megan again. I don't know. She's in the promo. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Like, again, I. no one is very good at predicting what happens on Mad Men, least of all me, but Don seems so humiliated by that admission in in that moment when he was talking to Rachel's sister that I just, you know, didn't feel like finished business. Yeah. Although, what is, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> is that all there is? What about what about the return of, of Rachel Menken? Oh, my God. <laughs> my heart is breaking. I'm so sad. So Rachel is, like, one of my, like, favorite characters Mad Men's ever had. And if people remember in the first season, there was, like, pretty well-hatched theory that Don's secret, this is before we found out about Dick Whitman, was that Don was secretly Jewish. Obviously, we know now Don is not secretly Jewish, but we do know that the first season is very much about um, exile, right? Like, Don is looking for a homeland, right? right. And that's why they're pitching Israeli tourism. That's why In Don becomes... Yeah. Yeah. And they become... Don becomes very fascinated by Exodus, and, and he's really taken by Rachel Menken, who, in addition to being very smart and interesting and together and glamorous, is also... You know, she even says, like, I'm not that Jewish. And she sort of bristles at this idea. But Don sees her as somebody who, you know, she has a family business, right? Like, she is everything that Don sort of admires and and 
knows is like a gaping maw in his own spirit. Well, and there was also a sense in which they were pretty clearly soulmates. I mean, I think of all the people that Don didn't marry who he conceivably could have called a soulmate, I think she's at the top of the list. And there's actually that moment in Babylon where she says, essentially, you're not Jewish, but I think on some level you get this feeling of displacement. And right. and Don, and actually that's a pretty remarkable moment also because Don, as a, as a non-Jewish white man, is not saying, yes, it's exactly the same. He sort of agreeing with her on exactly the terms that she's setting. Yeah. And, and so I feel like her her death is, it's the road not taken romantically, but it also, in a way, indicates that his possibilities for endless renewal might be at an end. That's just my theory. I also felt like when Don is coming to Shiva and, you know, his Rachel's sister is trying to explain it, and he's like, I've lived in New York for a long time. I know what Shiva is. <laughs> I really, I thought that moment was funny, but yeah. it was also like, there's no way, she died of leukemia, right? So even if they had gotten married, she still would have died. Died, yes. Right? And so Don is looking at the life that she had and wondering, like, oh, should am I the other guy? Right? They like want him to join in the prayer. And he's he says yes because he doesn't, I think, quite realize what they're asking him to mm-hmm. do. But you can sort of see this feeling. And I think it's a feeling that, unfortunately, for some of us might be familiar, is that, like, oh, even if I was there, I couldn't have saved her. Even if I had been, if I had done this, like, sliding doors life, this hurts, but it's not, I would be hurt in this whole other way. And how dare I be relieved, but maybe part of me is. I just want to say also that I'm really going to miss when the show is over, not just the show, but specifically Don Draper's stricken look. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His stricken really look. Well. He has a great stricken look, and he has, John Hamm has some of the saddest eyes I think I've ever seen on a leading actor on TV, and boy, this is the right show to use him. Right. I mean, I am somebody who wanted Rachel to be on every episode for forever. I'd watch a spinoff about Rachel. I'd watch a prequel that was just about, like, <laughs> Rachel's life. I love the department store and all of that. And, you know, like, the dogs on the roof. Like, there's so much in that first season with Rachel. And she's yeah. the first person we see Don confess anything about his past to. He talks about those two sorry people who raised him who weren't his parents. And, um, yeah. it's, and it's not just about losing someone who's a soulmate, but yeah. losing someone who yet another person who knew he felt knew him, who was just gone right. from the Who world. understood right. him. Yeah. Right. And also was like not actually super down for his bullshit. Yeah. Right. Which is not yeah. true of everyone we've seen Don fall for. Like no. a lot of people are super down for Don's bullshit. And I think there's a part of him that realizes like what that costs him. Right. And that, that at a certain level, there's a way that he fundamentally never, ever was able to respect Megan. Right. Like in comparison no. to Rachel Menken. Well, because and, and also- Megan was like, I am down. Like, I get it. Like. Tell me the truth. And, you know, she knows about Dick Whitman. She knows the whole thing. But there's this, like, I don't know, dilettantism to Megan's love that I feel like is different than the way Rachel understands what I don't Don's know. I feel is. like her love is sincere. But but I when I think of her in relation to another woman, I think of Faye. You Megan know, or that Rachel? Was Megan. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, because, like, do you want a grown-up or do you yeah, want a that's, secretary? Yeah, do you want to be? Do you want to be challenged or you, do you want to be have your awesomeness affirmed and, you know, that, that was the question, and Don went with option number two. I also in Disney, think, and, and I love that it's in, in, in Disney Disneyland. Tomorrowland, sure. Yeah, yeah but it's also beautiful. that. I mean, I think the contrast between uh, Faye and Megan is also very directed at being a mom. Yeah, right. Because we know that Doctor Faye is not at all interested in that, and not actually very good at it either. Right? She says to Sally, like, "Remember me from yesterday?" And Sally's like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Right? Like, Sally's yeah. like, "Of course I remember you from yesterday." And Don doesn't know what to do. Right? The, where Sally sort of like runs to the office, and that's when she falls down. Mm-hmm. Although it's important, I think, to footnote that and say that um, when Do- what Don is looking for is not a life partner to join him in the adventure of raising his children. Oh, not at all. But somebody, <laughs> but basically a nanny, like somebody he can subcontract it to. Because although he has moments 
moments where he's a good dad and he can connect with his kids, the day-to-day part of it is not something that interests him. No. In the same way that the day-to-day business of the agency doesn't interest him. Right. So I yeah. think when we see Faye sort of recoil, and she says, like, you know, if I wanted to have had kids, I would have had kids. Like, right. I am not interested in what you're trying to force me to be doing right now. And then we see Megan when Bobby spills the milkshake and everyone, and you can see the tension. You can see what it's like to grow up in a house where Betty Draper is your mom, right? This like constant sense of having done something wrong. You're always about to get punished, probably capriciously. We've seen Bobby and Sally be punished sort of at random in a lot of ways. It's not like a clear consequence issue. So then she spills the milkshake and everyone tenses up and freezes. And Megan's like, just get a napkin, you know? And Mm -hmm. Megan is like so unfazed by this. And that's the moment where you're like, oh, we're going down like a different path right now because Don sees what it would be like if things were easy and things with Megan at that point seemed very easy in a way that things with Rachel were never going to be like easy like that. Things with Faye were not easy like that. Things with Betty weren't easy like that. And who is it who says that line? Is it Faye who says you only like the beginning? You only like the beginning. Yeah, Yeah, when he calls her to dump her by saying like, P.S. I got engaged. Because she's like, oh, are we going to go get dinner? Like, you're my boyfriend. We've been dating for like a long time. He's like, um, maybe we should (laughs) just get coffee. And she's like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah. She's like, wait, don't make me go out on a date with you to get dumped. Like, what the hell are you talking about? And he's like, I'm engaged. Are we going to talk about Peggy, though? Before we talk about Peggy, could we talk a little bit about the waitress that, that Don gets, yeah. can gets I say, fixated can, on? Can I just say right off the bat, I didn't like that scene. I didn't like yeah. that scene. And there's a, there's a sense in which Don Draper's irresistibility and sexual prowess has always been... Uh, there's an element of male fantasy to it, even as it's being critiqued. And there are times when the show, as much as I love the show, is pushing it a little bit. And sometimes going too far without really earning it, and that just, it just felt like a 70s, yay, sexual revolution, we can screw anything we want to kind of moment to me. Well, but she's a sex worker. She wasn't screwing him from, like, a desire point. She was, like, thought he was a John. I know, but still, there's just, there's there's an ugly undertone to some of that stuff on the show that doesn't sit right with me. And that's, and this is like, again, I love the show. I love the show. I'm just saying. (laughs) We all love Mad Men. This is a safe space to express your feelings. Fine. I'm just saying. I think there's other ways to sort of visually illustrate some of the issues that Don is going through as a man than that particular couple of scenes. Sure. That's all I'm saying. And also, I didn't like the character, I didn't like her character or the performance. Like, that is not my favorite section of Mad Men. By a long shot. Um, I do think it's interesting that for somebody who grew up in brothels, Don is that unable to spot a moment of sex work, right? That he doesn't realize that's what's happening. And he's, you know, we've seen him hang out at, um, remember with like when they run into Pete's dad at the whorehouse or whatever. And Don's like, I grew up in a place like this. This It's the nicest one I've ever been in, right? Like Don is like pretty savvy to sex work. And he certainly has participated in buying sex on many occasions. Um, We've seen him do that. So I thought that was like a little strange that he was that surprised by what was happening because he's somebody who doesn't apparently have any sort of moral compunctions about buying sex. So that moment to me, the reason that was interesting was like, oh, he's having like a real sort of distance from his own capabilities right now. And I also thought, you know, we've seen Don interact with diner waitresses kind of a lot. I was going to say, yeah. your grand unifying theory of <laughs> yeah. madman waitresses we need to hear. Well, no, okay, so we we see the important waitress figure in the Howard Johnson's episode where yeah. she's like, you know, I've seen a lot of fights, right? And and I think, I think in a lot of ways Don relates to this sense of observation that I think a lot of people in maybe the service industry have of like, you know, you're there but you're not there. And I've certainly had, you know, fights when it's like, oh, I'm sure the bartender now knows all of our shit, right? Like, because we had, like, a serious conversation at the bar, and and you're having these moments in front of people, 
but not. So we see Don, when he goes on his bender in Waldorf stories, wakes up and um, it's a woman he didn't... We see him go to bed with one woman and wake up with another one and even he didn't realize. And she's like putting on her waitress uniform and her name tag says Doris. And she's like, okay, Dick, like see you around or whatever. And he can't believe... Like he doesn't even remember going to this diner and like picking up his waitress and saying his name was Dick Whitman or whatever. So we see like all of these little moments and, and I think when Don sort of bristles at Roger being such a jerk at the diner, we see this feeling like Don is rich, but he's an interloper to wealth in a lot of ways. And I think he's very self-conscious about it. And we know that Don grew up not just poor, like really poor. Depression poor. Depression poor. And like, you know, the hobo code and all of that is going to be something that has like influences the way Don approaches things versus Roger, who we knew grew up rich his whole life we remember like we see roger's mom's funeral Mm -hmm. and it's just like this is like a sick apart like roger has never had that same kind of attitude about money and about service and we've seen don be surprisingly decent to people who are like waitresses and bartenders we see him nice to people who work in the office like not always obviously but he doesn't have that disregarding class yeah uh, disregarding class distinctions that would normally entitle him to be a jerk to people like that right right i mean we see like the uh the guy in the very first episode that he talks about cigarettes cigarettes and we see it like with the elevator man that he bribes to help him screw over Roger in season one. We also see him be much more decent to Carla, their housekeeper, than Betty ever is. Um, and we see, you know, it's not like Don is some like perfect, genteel human who's like, like has absolutely great social justice politics or something. But I do think he has different attitudes about it than than a lot of the people he rubs elbows with. What do you think the deal is with him finding the waitress familiar? I mean, that's a lot of his draw to her. He's like, I think I know you. Like, uh, Yeah, there's a... There's a <laughs> I don't love that part. Everything <laughs> is... Yeah, but uh, there, here's where I feel like Matthew Weiner's mythological tendencies come in. Don is a guy who's always searching for home. He's sort of this Odysseus-like figure. Bear with me here, okay? I'm with you. But along that way, uh, every woman that, that Odysseus encounters on his journey represents some kind of aspect of his great love who's who's back home, Penelope. I feel like there's something going on at that level on Madman in every season where he is searching for the idealized woman. Maybe it's his mother or something, I don't know, but that's why so many of the women he gets involved with have a similar look. They have a similar vibe. That's just my theory. And and I think we're I like continuing that, that in this in this episode. And 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 you know, Mad Men, as, as great as it is, it often has to resist the tendency to underline things to make sure that you get it. And, and it's such a brilliant show that I feel like it often earns the right to do that because that's part of what makes it a populist show as opposed to a kind of a hoity-toity, here's, here's your secret decoder ring to understand it show. Like, it's, it's sure. sort of, you know, it's subtle about that. It's subtle about that, and it gives you just enough, like, in the way that you feel like elements in a dream are connected, but you're not entirely sure how you know for sure right. that they are but right. you don't know how and you're never gonna know how uh, and that and that's part of don's life as a sexual human mm-hmm. being that i think is very well done and there was um, kind of a dreamlike feeling to this episode like right well, well we see don like we the waitress, the, the waitress and, and then and the way he sort of imagines rachel menken and even yeah. pete says like california felt like a dream like he yeah he's like it feels like something that didn't even happen well but that I mean, conversation with the woman on the plane last season oh sure know, yeah. like that felt very much i mean that was loaded with 
symbolically, metaphorically. That was a little bit. Dialogue. That that's was, a little bit like message received. Yeah. Like he was so thirsty. It's like, oh Lord. Well, like, immediately, right? this, like, it, so immediately the, he died of thirst. It's like, give me a break. Immediately, the speculation began. It's like, is that going to be the next Mrs. Don sure. Draper? Sure. <laughs> that said, I do want to go back to the idea that a lot of the women he dates look alike because I actually think that that's only half true, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think Betty and Rachel look alike. I don't think Megan and Rachel really look alike either. I don't think Doctor Faye looks like Megan or Betty. Oh no, 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 certainly not. But I mean the women that he go that he ends up with that he that he really ultimately decides to commit to like with his heart. Matt Weiner is a big Vertigo fan, and there's a real big Hitchcockian blondes versus brunettes thing happening oh, sure. in the yeah. show. I don't think it's a an accident at all that the women who represent some kind of uh, really serious problem, you know, a, a grenade tossed in the middle of of Don's constructed image are blondes. In terms of the like, what Don is seeking from the women he pursues, I think in a lot of ways he's he's seeking the things that he's not. And so in all these ways that Betty is perfect seeming, she has like this image of this like very respectable. You know, there's a point where someone says like he didn't bring anyone to their wedding, right? And he knew that <laughs> Betty would be yeah. able to bring people, and that, like yeah. that she is this like icon of. Like, what does the perfect American family look like? Well, if it's not Don and Betty, I don't know what is, right? Like, oh god, right? Yes. So he's like James Con and Thief carrying around his like <laughs> little little constructed. Like he has a collage of the of his dream that he carries in his wallet. Right. Like, that's, no, I mean, that's how basic Don is and what right. he thinks is the ideal. And so when he's yeah. looking for like when he feels very lost, he wants to t- be with somebody who feels like they have a homeland, right? So he's very interested in Rachel. Right. When he feels very perplexed by what's happening, he falls for a social psychologist who can sort of demystify what it is that women mean when they talk and she even says at one point like everyone feels better about after they talk about it you'd be surprised and he's like huh because he would be surprised because he doesn't listen to anybody he doesn't like talking right and we see him sort of with bobby barrett right when so we know that don is feeling like really bad about himself in season two as he should because like he's a monster um and then he like pursues this woman who is like sort of socially this monster and he and she is everything he is and he wants to look in a mirror that's coming back with a really unflattering reflection, right? Because that's what he's trying to come to terms with. So I think the moment when he keeps thinking he knows the waitress, to me this was like a reflection of Don is kind of in denial. And if you're in denial, it really removes your ability to do anything except keep up being in denial. And so you have this like sort of ghost of yourself and you're like a second behind all the time and you can't quite place stuff and everything feels a little fake and a little phony because Denial is a lot of work, right? Like it just takes a lot out of you, and and yet not as much work as changing things that are problematic about yourself. Well, which is like Don Draper's story on right. Some but level, I think like I Don feel. eventually like denial doesn't last, right? Eventually it goes supernova, it explodes, and then yes, it to... does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. Pretty good, right? So I think it's this moment where like you know we Don is excellent with names and faces. That's part of his thing, right? Like because he has to a work so hard to keep up this lie of his identity and be like he's a business guy, like he's a glad hander, like he can. He does say, like, how's the kids? Blah, blah, blah. Like, he knows how to do that. So for him to not be able to place someone is an unusual thing. For him to be genuinely wrong about that, it's like, okay, what is taking up that mental energy right now? And I think it's a lot of things. So why don't we move on to, to Peggy? <laughs> I think we've, yeah. we, we're donned out. <laughs> Never. Come back next week for more Don. <laughs> so this week, Peggy goes on a date with uh, some of you might recognize Brian him from my so-called life. <laughs> The actor's name is Devin Gummersall. They have this kind of adorable date, and we find out Peggy has never traveled before. They almost go off to Paris together. 
What do you think we learned about Peggy in this episode? I or? love drunk Peggy. <laughs> she's yeah, I just like I just like how she gets like sweaty, like, right? Like she's like really sweaty in this episode because she's like tanked and she's like yeah, trying to have a good time. She's giddy and giggly. Yeah. The thing I like the most about that guy is at for now at least, and Mad Men always could spring an ugly surprise on us, but for now at least he doesn't seem to want anything from her except to be with her. Yeah. That's interesting, and it's very pure and innocent and nice. And and I'm always happy when Peggy gets a bit of pleasure that is not going to be followed by somebody presenting her with a bill of one kind or another. Right. Yeah. You know, like and so many of her relationships have all turned out to be more trouble than they're worth. And uh, there's like I, too I, much I, ego involved. Yeah, and, and yeah. there's also this there's this BS kind of controlling thing happening. Like w- one one of the things that intrigues me the most about Peggy's love life is she, her journey is so much the journey of a woman discovering a feminist identity for herself at that particular time in American history. But the men that she often ended up with were nice guys with quotes around them like they're right. they're liberal but they're not so liberal that they're not trying to posture like they're uh, macho alpha but I mean, male even when, types when and, it, and you know she there's... and abe talk about it at length when she's like you know there's lots of things i can't do and he's like oh right peggy we'll have a march for women and it's like yeah yeah and this guy's a village we voice reporter yeah right? like he's like so you know he's the guy who's like supposed to have these like progressive ideals or whatever and he yeah. completely dismisses the idea that you know there's anything peggy would ever have brushed up against that was like sexist or limiting right yeah yeah but I, I i really hope that you know it almost seems anathema to the idea of of this particular kind of quality tv to have somebody just be nice and have somebody have something happen for them that is just good and makes them happy <laughs> yeah. but we're we're only a few episodes away from the end it wouldn't be a bad thing if we got that i think i would like it i would like it i also i like what happens when peggy lets her guard down right and she's somebody for whom that's not a not only is that not easy, but she kind of can't ever do that, right? Like, she has to have her guard up a lot. And it's not like yeah. a, it's mm-hmm. not a flaw. It's not like a problem I wish Peggy would work on, right? It's like her life has to, she has to have her guard up because people are crappy to her all the time. From the moment we meet her, people are insulting her. They're making fun of her. They're degrading her. Like, her mom is an asshole to her. Her sister, the priest, yeah. you know, and even with Ted, right? Peggy finally lets her car down. They hook up. They're very into each other. And he's like, peace. Like, I'm moving to California to save my marriage. And she's like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. what yeah. It, the hell yeah. am I doing? So I thought, like, at the beginning of their date when she was like, oh, here we go again. Like, another sort of, I'm just going through the motions here. Like, I'm supposed to go on dates because that's what we were supposed to do. But, like, I don't give a shit. Right? Like, <laughs> this is just, like, this is not fun. This is not, like, I'm not, like, tantalized. Like, this is not like, oh, yay, yeah. I'm going to fall in love right now. I'm just like, going to have a drink. I'm going to swap dinners with this dumbass who, like, won't even send food back. Right? Like, yeah. it's like, this is how much you ordered. And he's like, who cares? Right? And it's just, I love like, that. I like, love yeah. that. And I think that's sort of, there's no other guy that Peggy ever dated would have said that. Yeah. Right? Like, not Abe, not the guy. Remember when there's that guy that he's like, I'm her fiancé. And she's like, what the fuck? You're not my fiancé. Yeah. Right? Like, to Don. And it's just like some herb she's dating. And she, like, yeah. ditches him at a restaurant with her family and stuff. Like, yeah. Peggy doesn't have great luck in this department. No. So I thought it was, like, very charming to see her sort of, like, loosen up a little bit and have it be okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about the Peggy-Joan dynamic in this episode. Joan is sexually harassed in, in a meeting. And we have a clip we want to play of a conversation that Peggy and Joan have after this meeting. Should we have lunch? I want to burn this place down. I know. They were awful. But at least we got a yes. Would you have rather had a friendly no? I don't expect you to understand. Joan, you've never experienced that before. Have you, Peggy? I don't know. You can't have it both ways. You can't dress the way you do. And How do I dress? 
Look, they didn't take me seriously either. So what you're saying is, I don't dress the way you do because I don't look like you. And that's very, very true. You know what? You're filthy rich. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. There's always been a lot of tension between Peggy and Joan on this show. How would you define their relationship? I mean, fraught, right? Like, I think ultimately there's a lot of shared history there, but Joan is really mean to Peggy for a really long time and never gets... Condescending. Condescending. And and brutally nasty. And she calls Peggy fat any chance she gets. She's very mean to her in the first season. When Peggy gets made a copywriter, when it's Joan's going away party, she says, you know, I do take some credit for your success. And it's like, whoa! Hey, no you don't! Like, you, the only thing you ever told me was I couldn't do it. Right? And and then you see that, I guess it's in last season maybe, where, um where Joan tries to pitch an account mm-hmm. and she, Peggy's like, let me handle this part. And Peggy says like, no, you always, the difference is you always told me I couldn't do it. And she did. Like, I mean, Joan is mean as hell. Like, oh, she is. Super she mean. Is, she is. And, and, and it's funny that what you were saying was reminding me that uh, Joan established herself very early on in the pilot as a wannabe mentor figure to Peggy, just as she has clearly been to all these women in the secretarial pool. But she represents a bad kind of mentor in the sense that she's she's trying to inculcate and reproduce these old values that are going to be hopefully discredited in some way by the feminist revolution that we see these women passing through. Right. And and so in a way her frustration with Peggy her lashing out at Peggy is it's symptomatic of the way that she feels that she has failed to seize opportunities that Peggy seized and that she only sees because she disregarded a lot of the lessons that Joan was trying to teach her. Right. And I think that like, Peggy and Joan, when they look at each other, it's just all the things that they aren't and don't know how to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not a mentor mentee relationship because the things that make Peggy Peggy are not the same kinds of things that make Joan Joan and their ability to sort of right. play along with certain rules or play against those rules or into them or whatever is very, very different. They're both you know, kind of paving their way, but in like completely in different In totally different ways. And I think... Well, um, and how did Joan get her partnership? I mean, oh. I'm sorry to say <laughs> sure. it's unfortunate, but, you know, Peggy has not risen to that sort of position in terms of financial success, but she is in a position of considerable influence and uh, she went her own way. Yeah. She went the new way. You well, know. we also, I mean, we hear Joan say, I was... Uh, what did she say about her mom? Like, I was raised to be gazed at or I was raised to be beheld. Something like that. Where Joan's whole life she's been told the only asset you bring to the table is the way you look. Yeah. And, you know, Joan's mom, we get to know a little bit in season five, I think, when she's helping mm-hmm. Joan with Kevin and stuff. You know, she's not like a monster human or whatever. But if you're raised to believe that the only thing that you have of value or influence is the way you look and the way men will, you know, do things for you, that's going to be a hard way to have a full, meaningful life. You know, we see her sort of really struggle with this when she, um, after she has Kevin and she comes back to the office and she's wearing a weird, like she's wearing like a cocktail dress, right? And and she's so afraid that she's being replaced and Lane is like, oh my God, no, that would never happen. But we see Joan really struggle with what is my value to this company and how do I know that I have it and, and in what ways can I be sure of things, right? Because Joan you know, we've been with these characters now for like 10 years or so. Like Joan's sort of coquettish, like everyone is watching me thing is coming to an end. Like there's going to be a point, you know, it's not right now, but like 
the idea of mm-hmm. just being this object of desire is not going to be the way Joan will be able to construct. And yet, her she's tremendously anymore. capable. She's tremendously good at what she does. And in fact, she receives compliments on her bookkeeping from some of these same sexist men who are ogling her. Oh, and she also you we know, know that she's actually like a terrific, smart person. We see in. Um, an early season where Harry is trying to read soap opera scripts or whatever, and he just is like a dumb sack of garbage, right? Like, Harry, I love the character, but like, what a dumbass, right? And Joan is like, I know exactly what to do. And she does know what to do, right? There's no lack of capableness with Joan. There's no lack yeah. of intelligence or business savvy or whatever. Like, if you need to, right, there's a reason that she's with the first phone call when they decide to launch a new firm. And it's not because she dials a phone better, right? It's because she knows how to maintain relationships. We see her do it in moments of crisis. We see her do it in moments of success. And when everyone else is failing, Joan is the one who, you know, doesn't ever have a day off, kind of. Like, there's no, Joan yeah. doesn't ever screw around. She's, even in her nastiest moments, she'll still say, like, have a good weekend, right? Like, yeah, she's the air that, traffic controller. Yeah. The planes crash if she's not paying attention. Yeah, but I think the sort of relationship with her and Peggy, I was always surprised when they had real moments of friendliness, like when she's like, I'm glad you're here. I'm just like, are you? You guys really don't like each right. other that much. I mean, much. even this clip, the way this clip started that we just played, Peggy's like, so should we get lunch? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it's like, they kind of try for it, but it just doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they just have very different ways of, you know, we talk a lot about the questions of shows, and obviously Mad Men's question is, who am I? But I think another way that it gets at that is, what do I want, right? Obviously, yeah. we have advertising, and most of the way the show works is describing, you know, what you want. If you didn't, like, do I want to fly Mohawk Airlines? Like, I don't give a shit, right? Like, there's not really a difference between that or, like, this brand versus that brand, glow coat versus whatever else, life seal versus whatever else, right? It's about convincing you that this is what you want. You have a need that you, that, that there's a, that Don's genius and it comes from knowing himself in a way is realizing that the basis of all advertising is identifying this fundamental, unquenchable unhappiness that exists in every person and exploiting it to sell things. Right. And, he's, so, and he's really mercenary about his explanation of that. And it's not just him, right? Like, it's not like yeah. Don invented this concept that no. that is everything and we see all of our characters sort of deal with the pitches that they're delivering are in some way what they want right so peggy yes. delivers this pitch about a nuclear family because she's like oh this is the thing i specifically avoided yeah. like there's a part of me or ted pitches we have like all this stuff about like margarine and right it's like stable nothing will change margarine will be the same on the shelf now in a hundred years you can still have this margarine every yeah. single pitch we see is some way reflecting what that character who's working on that pitch really wants even ted in this episode was like what was his pitch for every there are three women in every man's life yeah. <laughs> like mm, yeah. are there are there ted yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right so i think yeah. um and i think when you get down to like what does peggy want versus what does joan want and what are the ways that those wants construct the way they see themselves those are just really different answers yeah they are and it's interesting to see the show present all this without i don't feel judging either of them oh not feel, at all i don't no. feel that it is how could you? I mean, like, A, I think Mad Men is a show that doesn't judge its characters Yeah, I in really general. don't think it does either. Um, I mean, I think yeah. there's a reason, like, you can have Pete Campbell be such a longstanding character without... And, like, Pete is obviously, like, a garbage troll, right? Like, like but <laughs> well, then he also, is. but he's also not, right? And like, he'll, he also... sometimes he'll burst out with these these very socially advanced insights oh, sure, that like... seem to be sincerely felt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, when... I don't think he's just spouting it to get people to approve of no, him. No, he's I like, think it's a he... shameful day. I think he, yeah, he yeah. really believes oh, it. Oh, yeah. And also, like, you know, we know Pete's horror. Like, if you were raised by parents who hated you, wouldn't you have a bad life in a lot of ways? Like, you'd have to do a lot of work to feel 
like you deserved love and compassion if you were raised by people who didn't like you and were never nice to you right and we get to know that through pete we see both of pete's parents at certain points their deaths don't devastate him they just baffle him he says to don i don't know what to do and it's like yeah you didn't like your dad and he didn't like you that's a real burden yeah you know that's a hard thing um but i think in terms of peggy and joan like no one is doing that good a job of anything on Mad Men except advertising, right? Like, no one's having these, like, very... <laughs> I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms, but yes. Right, yes. like, is Rod, like, who... Thumbs up the show. <laughs> you know, like, who, who's, whose life would you want? And it's like, uh, none, no Nobody's. Thanks. Well, we've talked a lot about the plot machinations of this first episode, and we want to bring on New York Magazine's music critic, Lindsay Zolads, to tell us a little bit about the music choice for this episode. Hello, Lindsay. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. So this episode begins and ends with, is that all there is? Is this is this Peggy Lee's song or is it a version? Is it a cover she did? It's a Lieber and Stoller okay. song that she is not the first person to do a version of it, but hers is definitely the most well-known. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my... I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment. It feels strange that it hasn't been used yet on the show because it's so, the tone of it, and just this sense of like very American ennui is like so quintessentially Mad Men. Obviously, it's a song that Peggy Lee doesn't record till 1969. And I think that sense of like, how has this not been used before sort of goes to show that this is a song that people think of as being older than it actually is. It doesn't sound like when you think 1969, it was a number mm-hmm. one hit that year. And it's one of those songs that's already sort of nostalgic for this time of the great American songbook. And Coming is this sort of nostalgic hit in the context of like what the Beatles and the Stones are doing that year. So I think in that way, it really fits this episode that is so much sort of like Don looking back with this sense of disillusionment and kind of malaise and unease. I think it was the perfect choice for that. It's interesting that the song both begins and ends the episode. I don't know that Mad Men has done that before. Yeah, I was wondering, I was trying to think of other examples of that. And yeah coming up short. I don't think so. I don't think so Yeah, either. I mean, the closing song choices are always, or are often important, I think, to mm-hmm. framing the episode and closing the episode out. Um, but, and we've, I mean, we've seen sort of songs that are not of the specific time period used in Mad Men a lot. So I think sometimes when... There's a like, cardigan song once. Yeah, it was a December song. The December one. I you actually, know. like, hated that. I rewatched <laughs> that episode recently and was like, this is just a choice that didn't work. It, and I was sort of glad they feel, moved past that. It doesn't feel right. No, it's also yeah. just... It, it soundtracks... The December song is the one that soundtracks the, like... Um, Everyone getting ready. Yeah, the, like, Marilyn or Jackie episode with the yeah. bras. And I just think they're, like, such a profoundly unsexy band that, like, <laughs> something about, like, women getting dressed um, to that song. I, I think there are also song choices that wind up being ironic on the show, right? Like, there's a... I think Tomorrowland ends with I Got You, Babe, yeah. right? And that's, yeah. like, the least mad many song, like, uh-huh. ever, right? And yet, and yet, it's funny, Weiner talked about this on the panel 
he seemed kind of frustrated that that song is still so strongly identified with Groundhog Day. He was, <laughs> I think he was sort of hoping to come in and steal that song away from Groundhog Day. Oh. And yet, I, one of the reasons why I love that choice is that, that I, it makes me think of Groundhog Day, which is about a guy reliving the same yeah. day over and over, which uh-huh. is what Don is doing with his love life. It's yeah. like, here we go again. But I mean, in terms of like how the song closes the episode, it's like Gypsy and the Hobo, the Gypsy and the Hobo, which is like a real time capsule episode for me that ends with where is love from Oliver right then it's just like yeah. well that's pretty on the nose right because <laughs> um, his neighbor even's like oh and who are you supposed to be and then it starts with where is love and it's like oh lord like that's really on yeah. the nose right and then we also have episodes that sort of have a twist or there's the ones where like Father Gill is playing um, early in the morning by Peter Paul and Mary and then it sort of transitions into the actual version of the song same with I think Waters of Babylon ends that way yeah um and just in terms of like how, you know, how tied up in a bow is this episode? And are we leaving on a button? Are we leaving on like a twist? Are, are we supposed to take this moment to like reframe it? Or there's a episode where it ends with um, uh, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. Is that what that song's called? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's an episode where it's like that did happen, basically. <laughs> Usually it's such an impactful musical cue. Yeah. And it comes back. No, it's like in, a like, real needle drop. Like, and it boom. is when they do it the best it's a chills moment it really is just like it all sort of comes together and something about this felt different and just more like this song was embedding this entire atmosphere that they'd created which felt somehow new to me but it also like this just feels like a song that like there's no way Weiner hasn't been thinking for years right. about like how he's going to use. There's like, something this about song. The, in, the instrumentation. Something about it is Fellini-esque. Like there's a, there's a kind of a carnal or yeah. circus aspect to the feeling of it. Because you know the the theme of the song is it's actually based on um, Lieber and Stoller wrote it based on a Thomas Mann short story from like 1900. Uh, or thereabouts. It is literally called disillusionment, so that he spells it out pretty <laughs> well, there cleanly. There you go. But what I also this think it is about. feeds into the whole episode's sense of like sort of disorientation, right? Like, yeah. Like, oh, how long have I been asleep? Like that feeling, mm-hmm. right? Of like, and how do where do I know you from? And, and yeah, something like, like that. Yeah, ta- like like oh, am I back in the same place? Like that sort of like Freudian uncanniness of like home but not home, mm-hmm. right? Like oh, is this the beginning again, or is was the end the beginning already? Like that sense of like a little bit untethered maybe yeah i mean the episode is called severance it kind of gets at this feeling of disconnection mm-hmm. i was going to say that something you said margaret about the the song choices uh sometimes being on the nose um i think you're right about that but it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me oh, it doesn't bother me at all time. yeah because mm-hmm. i feel like it's sort of the music in a way is used in the same way that dream sequences are sometimes used and in, in in that Sometimes dreams are on the nose, like they're, you know, like dreams are full of freaking cliches, you know. And sometimes there's, sometimes you'll have a dream that takes a long time to figure out what the dream is telling you, and other times it's flat out saying, you know, do this, do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And I think the the music is that way too. Tomorrow never knows. The use of that Beatles song that was a brilliant choice on a lot of different levels because of the mood of menace and the kind of experimental nature of it, and the demonic sort of undertone. It's not the obvious beat. Of all the songs they could have picked to Mm -hmm. to pay $400,000 for license, (laughs) I love that they chose that one. It was absolutely right on the money, and that was completely a not obvious choice. But some of the choices are obvious, but in a way that I find satisfying. Yeah, and and when Don pulls the needle off the record for that, it's just a perfect He can't handle it. Yeah, Yeah, he's not ready to move. And again, that's why this... Is that all there is? It's post Beatles and post Stones, but it is this moment of nostalgia for the people sending this to the top of the charts are the ones taking the needle off Sgt. Peppers and, mm-hmm. and right. saying, like, I want something simpler. But there is this, like, dark 
undercurrent to it too. And I think it also, just in thinking too of the meta heightened expectations for how the series is going to end, it's such a cheeky choice of is that all there is, you know, to the end of <laughs> yes. Mad Men. And, yeah. you know, you always hear the complaint of people that don't sort of like the rhythm or the texture of the show that like is that all there is to the season premiere or the finale or something. It's sort of a show where in some senses nothing <laughs> happens. So I thought that was yeah. kind I of, a, of it. Yeah, a cheeky... I like a preemptive um, strike against, against criticism. Yeah, that's exactly. Funny. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a song about being disillusioned with all these life experiences that are supposed to be so great or so dramatic. And there's a the house fire and the circus and then falling in love, which is the verse that the episode ends on with when Don is alone at the diner sort of saying like is that all there is to love but the final verse is is about death so I think it's also playing around with that foreshadowing that you know all the rumors of like is Don gonna die are they gonna kill off a main character um is this actually foreshadowing or are they sending us off <laughs> Well, so there was a death on this episode, right? I mean, True. like it's, right. it's, it, might, it might just be regular shadowing, right? Like mm-hmm. this is just, <laughs> this, has, this has happened. Straight like <laughs> I love this song and I, I think it was mostly used very effectively, but I, something about the diner scenes that you were saying before, Matt, just sort of rung a little bit hollow to me. And I kind of, I almost wish if they were saving this for such a special occasion, I wish it could have been in like a slightly <laughs> more <laughs> profound scene um but i guess that's my disillusionment and they're <laughs> coming out once again well thank you so much Lindsay. thank you thank you so we've talked a lot about Mad Men from a critical perspective we're going to take a moment to talk about it from a business perspective now we're going to bring on amc's president charlie collier to discuss why the network has decided to go all out in its promotion campaign for Mad Men and the success it's had with Better Call Saul. And with that, I'll hand it over to our West Coast editor, Joe Adalian. Thank you, Gazelle. And Charlie, welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a busy few weeks at AMC. You know, you just wrapped up the latest season of Walking Dead, which continues to be the biggest show on TV among viewers under 50, uh, <laughs> and one of the biggest shows in general. We also successfully launched Better Call Saul, which is the sort of prequel to Breaking Bad. And finally, you just started airing what will be the final seven episodes of Mad Men. But I actually want to start by talking a little bit about Saul, because that's the most interesting thing to me of what's happened in the last few months at AMC. You know, there were more than a few naysayers in the media uh, when you announced the deal with Vince Gilligan to do Saul. I want to read to you what one major national critic, not from Vulture, um, (laughs) said back in 2013 when the whole uh, Saul uh, idea was revealed. Uh, This person wrote, Does anyone really want to undercut the impact of Breaking Bad with a new series in the same universe but the zany antics of the cynical lawyer? Now, in fairness, nobody had seen as much as the script back then. Um, and this is a really good critic. I like him. Uh, and it's very possible things could have gone awry. But they didn't. You've got him uh, almost unanimously rave reviews, especially as the show's continuing to air. Are you ready to go out there and just sort of say, told ya? <laughs> I'm not that guy. Obviously, we feared, you know, messing with a series that was all of our passion project and one that was so well executed on by by all the amazing talent on, uh, on both sides of the camera. But on the other hand, what we do for a living so often is place bets on incredibly talented people. And uh, we placed bets on incredible talent in, in Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. And when they told us they had more story to tell, if you're in my chair and that bet is yours to place. You place that every time. Watching the first season now, um, what do you think the show worked? What, 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 what do you think has been the key to both it working creatively but also clicking with viewers? Well, 
What was remarkable about Saul, and Vince has talked about this a lot, and Peter, who created the character, he was a Saul for them. You know, when they needed to make it more believable that this chemistry teacher and this flunky could not just make meth, but actually build a huge operation, they built this incredibly lovable and, and, and wonderful character in Saul. And once we fell in love with him, the question of how did that guy become that guy and how did he wind up in Albuquerque and how did he become the best worst lawyer in the world? Now it seems like a very natural question. We've got to talk about Mad Men. Leading up to the premiere, you guys truly did go all out to make this farewell a very big deal. I mean, it, it's you've had museum events around the country and panels. You've The on-air promotional campaign has been early and often. You know, but given the fact that you don't even fully own the show, the fact that Mad Men has never been as big in the ratings as some of the other successes, why was it so key to go out big at the end? You know, I look at what NBC did with Parks and Recreation, one of their great comedies, and it was a piddling compared to what you've done for Mad Men. What was, what's the thinking behind that? I mean, it's, it's, you don't really think you're going to get a huge, massive ratings pop necessarily, do you? You know, you do each show for a different reason, and we are so proud of the AMC brand built around the notion of being eclectic by design. I mean, imagine having The Walking Dead numerically a powerhouse, and also having the most upscale show on television, meaning uh, uh, Mad Men is, in fact, reaching more people, more, more people who really are difficult to reach and covet this sort of storytelling. And for us, Mad Men was not just our first scripted original series in this uh, reinvention of AMC, but, but it also set the tone for the type of network we are and will continue to be, which is, you know, an enduring commitment to uh, uh, adult dramas and uh, storytelling that, that is about being unconventional and uncompromising. And really our goal internally was to put it in the Hall of Fame. We're putting it in the Smithsonian next to Archie Bunker's chair and Dorothy's slippers. For us, it's not so much about the end of Mad Men being a big event on television numerically. It's about the fact that we created something that now is in the American History Museum at the Smithsonian and will forever be linked to the AMC brand. And we thought those actors, those writers, and certainly Matthew Weiner deserve to go out in a way that was only befitting of Mad Men. You've seen the finale, correct? Oh, yes. Can you give me one word to describe it? Sublime. Thanks again, Charlie. Uh, Gazelle, back to you. Thanks, Joe. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons. You can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter as Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.